Hey, man, good to see everybody. You can be seated. The longer you clap, the less I get to speak. So um, anyway, great to see everybody here today. And uh, we had a great Saturday night service. Um, great group of people here. But we all know that the early service on Sunday is the most spiritual people. Uh, it's not the Saturday night folks. I love them dearly. They had other plans today. They came to church last night. The second service, they're still in bed. But you are here uh, pouring your heart out to the Lord. And I think I used that exact same joke when I was here a year ago. So how many, this is the first time that we've ever had a chance to meet each other. Let me see your hands. Okay, great crowd of people here, brand new. And it's an honor to be here. I love Pastor Jesse, and we became friends many, many uh, years ago. Many, many. I'm from the 1900s, so I got to. Uh, um, but I, I met Jesse probably six, maybe five, six, seven years ago, and we just struck up a kindred heart uh, together and have loved watching this ministry before COVID, through COVID, and just seeing the boldness. Uh, and, you know, being bold only works if what you're saying is true. Uh, if, if what you're saying is not true, being loud and bold is a waste of time. Matter of fact, it's irritating. Uh, but boldness only works if what you're saying is true. And I'm very grateful that Eternity Church is a truth-telling church because that's the crisis in America. We don't have truth-tellers. And uh, I just so appreciate the commitment to the kingdom and to love and to uh, the ministry of kingdom grace for people. But uh, what a great place this is. So anyway, this morning we're going to be in the 17th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And I would venture to say that you've never heard a sermon on this passage of scripture. Um, I know I have never heard in my whole life uh, until I preached it just recently and taught this actually in a classroom. And I go, you know, this is more than just a classroom thing to share. This is, this is for the pulpit. This is for uh, a broader, broader audience. And so I've shared it in a couple places. Um, I think only one other place in my life uh, on a Sunday or a weekend. I shared it last night and it seemed to uh, really, really connect uh, well with uh, the church. And so we're going to share this sometimes. Multiple services. I do not have multiple personalities, but I have multiple messages. Uh, um, I, I usually share different sermons on Sundays when I am at churches. They go, you do what? It drives the tech people crazy and messes up everything. Uh, I know we have great campuses that are watching this and great online audience. Um, but I'm kind of old school. I oftentimes don't know until I come into the worship service what the Lord wants me to teach on that day. And I know that messes with all the left brain people in this room, um, but I have my PhD and I, I love education and I'm very systematic and I wrote a very lengthy dissertation, but I, I still like to not just go with the flow, but really take a nudge from the Lord. And this morning, um, I am going to actually share what I shared last night, um, again, out of Deuteronomy 17. So get your Bibles ready there in just a moment. You know, I was having communion the other day at a church, and I was thinking about uh, the Last Supper and the crucifixion and all that took place in, that, in those moments in which so many iconic scenes of Jesus that have meant so much in understanding who Christ was, his mission, all unfolded in this condensed few hours around the Last Supper and, of course, uh, the foot, foot washing, the teaching on the Holy Spirit, the betrayal of Judas, the arrest, uh, the horrible beatings of Christ, the torturing of Christ. 
And then his suspension upon that cross for uh, six hours on that day, <coughs> suspended between two other participants. And I was studying again and saw something about that conversation between the thieves. You know, these thieves are hanging on either, either side of Christ and they realize that they're about to go into the abyss. And that's the great terror of the human soul, the abyss. Um, it's, it's isolation, it's eternal isolation and torture, the abyss. And they realize time has run out. Two things happen when time runs out in your life. You either double down and you stick to all of your emotional and philosophical investments and you cannot divest of your wrongdoing or wrong thinking even as you are being edged toward the abyss. And that's what one of the thieves did. His heart got harder. Are you serious? As he inched toward or sped toward the final moments of his life, can you imagine doubling down on your unbelief, doubling down on your rebellion? And so he's mocking Jesus. But the other thief, he is actually having a conversation with the thief. Even though the person that's closest to him is Jesus, he's still having a conversation with the other thief. He's talking to the thief and they're going back and forth. And finally, one of the thieves makes the best decision you can ever make as a thief. And that's to stop talking to other thieves. He stops talking to the thief and starts talking to Jesus. And once he took his eyes off the thief and the thieves, and that's what our society is addicted to. We're just a bunch of thieves talking to other thieves. Even though the thing that's closest to us is Jesus. So today if you're here and you're obsessed with the perspective of other thieves, get your eyes off the thief and put your eyes and change your conversation to the Lord this morning. And instead of all the people that are foolish and have hurt you and wronged you, stop talking to human beings and start talking to the King of Kings. Can somebody say amen? amen. You know, the, the, the Greeks, the Greeks had two ways of measuring time in this life. The first way is the common way. It's called chronos, or, and it's a word we get for chronology or uh, chronicles of Narnia, and it tells a story that is kind of a timeline uh, in life. It's historical. Uh, on a boat, they would have her ship a chronometer, which helps them keep their bearings so they're not lost at sea. So chronos is about understanding segmented time. It's how the human heart and the human calendar are organized according to chronology or chronos time. Chronos is important. We have to be where we have to be at a certain time. It's how human beings remain civilized. It's because our, a clock and a calendar keeps us orderly, keeps us committed. But spiritual life is not dictated by chronos time. There's another way that the Greeks told time, which is rarely understood or talked about, in our society, Western society, it wasn't chronos time, segmented time, clock and calendar time. It was the word that they used to represent opportunity or season. Even the pagans used this word for the idea of fate or chance. But it was the word kairos. Kairos is understanding time in the sense that I have an opportunity that's been presented to me. I'm in a season. 
I have something that I need to see that has nothing to do with a clock and a calendar. And today, if we are going to be effective in this age of accelerated evil that has now set its entire target upon our most vulnerable, our children through education, the public education system, and through this false endeavors of sexual justice that has hijacked all conversations of justice, that is perpetuating and seeking to pass our generation of children through the fire right now, friends, like the Old Testament to Moloch. If we're going to stand in this day and time, we need to be better than just a well-organized person who has a clock and a calendar that, that you run your life by. You've got to be a Kairos person, someone who has this Holy Ghost sensitivity to understand, Lord, what is the season and the opportunity that is in front of me? Because it's not about what time is it, it's about what is it time for? What is it time for, not what time is it? And we have to be prophetically aware of what is it time for in my life? So I pray today that there would be a spirit of Kairos upon this 830 service today, not just a sense of Kronos, getting things back in order, but you would really understand the time and the season that God has in front of you. Somebody say amen. Amen, amen. Back in the 1970s, I didn't go to movies. I wasn't allowed to. I grew up in a legalistic family, Christian legalism. It was, it was alive and well. Um, and I, I actually started as a youth pastor. I was very legalistic. I made a good living off legalism. Um, I would preach on legalism, and I got a raise. You know, I actually bought a new car and a house off legalism. It was a great gig back in the 1980s. I'm being a little facetious. But legalism was like, we, we weren't allowed to ever go to a movie theater because, of course, Jesus uh, was not uh, going to come there if he returned. He's not looking there. You can't hear the trumpet sound, you know, in the theater. And we were forbidden because it was a den of iniquity. So when I was 10, I did a slumber party for a birthday party over at Scott Bodette's house. And not the guy that's the old Motel 6 guy, Scott Bodet, uh, but another guy named Scott Bodet. Some of you would have, you, you would have said, all service, you would have been wondering, is that the same guy that was Motel 6? No. And we got to the party and we found out that they were taking the six of us to a movie. I almost broke out in a sweat. Like, and so I found myself... For the first time walking into that palace of perversion and sin, the popcorn was unbelievable. I've never smelled popcorn like that. I've never sat in such plush red chairs. I've never seen such plush red carpeting. The screen was almost like, wow, this is something else. The sound system, and there I was just exposed to some of the most vile demonic things as I sat there and watched my first movie, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But it was, uh, uh, it was, it was what it was. <laughs> Flying cars and all kinds of manifestations. But in the 70s, another movie came out, which of course we didn't see. There were big movies in the 70s, Jaws, 
the Poseidon adventure, uh, the Godfather. And then there was a movie called The Exorcist. Now, some of you, I'm 60, some of you that are 70 uh, may have found yourself inside that movie. I never saw that movie, obviously, until the 1980s. I saw somewhat <laughs> of a sanitized <coughs> version on TNT on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and I saw a little bit, whoa, 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 I don't want to see this. <coughs> and the story is about a young girl that is possessed by a demon. And the storyline is there's two priests that come in and they are seeking to set her free. So the movie is this encounter between two priests and a demon-possessed little girl that's probably nine or ten years of age. And as the movie unfolds, it's horrible. And it gets so bad and so frightening that the young priest drops dead of a heart attack. He just, he can't take it. He's He's gone. Leaves the other priest, the more seasoned priest, and he continues to fight the battle until toward the end, this demon throws him down a stairwell and he breaks his neck and he's dead. And they're both dead. And at that point, this demonic spirit leaves the girl and the movie's over. And I was thinking about that this last year and I go, isn't that fascinating and how it relates to today, because maybe all of that demonic activity in that movie was not about the girl. It was all about taking out the church. And once the church was dead, the demon left. Now, I'm not trying to use that as an illustration of theology, but just simply as a practical observation of our day and times in the last three years, watching the assault to close down Christian colleges and to create uh, silence in the American pulpit, to take out the church and kill the church in the United States and to remove the gospel influence from the scene because if the church is dead, the story's over. And maybe all that's going on in this assault and this target that's been placed upon our adolescents and our children is all about doing something in such a way that causes young preachers just to fall down with heart attacks because they're so afraid and is causing older leaders to get their neck broken to do whatever it takes to take out the church. And so I'm grateful to God whenever I see in this post-pandemic world vibrant congregations. It's almost like I want to wear a shirt to say, devil, you lost. You did not take out eternity, church. You did not take away its voice. You've not created hesitancy and a sense of unbelief. Amen. This morning as you go to Deuteronomy 17, let me just mention um, very fast here, a couple resources. I brought these two before, and um, this one resource on leadership, the Lord continues to breathe on it. If you do not have a copy of this book, The Language of Influence, it is a perfect gift to give all of your employees, your teams. Uh, the Lord continues to give us stories of influence in public education, in government, the uh, sports teams, the Packers, and the uh, college football teams, uh, NFL teams have been 
been using this. High school uh, clubs have been using it. And it's a book of kingdom leadership. And so I want to encourage you, go back uh, out there to the table. If you don't have one or if you have one and need some more copies, those are there. And then also, this is a brand new resource called On Call Heroes. And it's a gift book. It's a faith-based gift book for um, first responders as a way to bless all of our police officers and firefighters and all the medical professionals and professionals and nurses and EMT and emergency room professionals and inner city school counselors, a way to bless them and thank them for holding this country together these last few years and beyond. Their work was there long before the pandemic. It'll last much beyond the pandemic. These are the heroes of our city. This picture of the black police officer with the tear coming down his cheek is one of the most beautiful photos photographs I've ever seen. And I simply write, rarely is the wind at your back at precisely the moment you need. It's usually in your face making you stronger. And that's how life works. And then here is a firefighter. And I simply write, when you serve others, the bitterness from not being served is washed away. And so it's filled with inspirational sayings, verses. It's, in, it's designed for you to give as a gift to police officers and firefighters throughout your city. I've been encouraging people, get a couple copies of this book, put it in your car, and the next police officer, firefighter, uh, medical professional you see having coffee at Starbucks, walk up and say, hey, officer, I go to Eternity Church and I just want to give you this as a gift and say thank you for keeping our city safe, our communities whole, and it's just a tremendous outreach. If you're a business leader, uh, we can talk about ways for you to get all of these uh, to all the uh, personnel. We, have, we had a person recently uh, give 600 copies of this to every graduate of the Chicago Police Academy. 600 brand new officers received their diploma and they were handed this book in that line because of a generous business leader in uh, Chicago that loves the Lord. And so um, the book is making its way all over the place. The last thing, and this is very fast, and this will make more sense at the end of my message. The great famine in our country is the famine both of prayer and of scripture. My wife has a tremendous anointing on her life. She teaches all over the country, preaches, um, and she has a gift for stirring men and women back to a prayer life and back to a hunger and a thirst for God's word. And so she is combined with a brand new resource. They're called Dominion Cards. They're very simple. And there's a pack of 12 of these that you can get. And it basically is a way to put it in your Bible Keep it with you. And it's a way to pray the scripture, to pray the scripture into your situation. And each month there's a brand new topic. This one's entitled Walking in the Spirit. Uh, this one's entitled Search Me and Know My Ways. It's a way to pray the word of God and to get scripture cultivated both in your prayer life and into your language. This one's entitled Victory Over My Enemies. And it's just filled with all of these powerful Bible verses that most people are not even even aware that are in the scripture, uh, the fear of the Lord. This was entitled speak to speak to your mountain. This one is entitled healing. <clears throat> this one is the wisdom and the will of God. This one is entitled God is, uh, the Lord is my strength. And again, no fear. And so they're just designed for you to rotate it throughout your devotional life and to keep them nearby and to put the word of God in your heart. These dominion cards are very, very powerful tools 
to cultivate that. If you're discipling somebody, helping somebody grow in the Lord, it's for your own personal life. Um, I encourage you to get these wonderful uh, Dominion cards. Speaking of my beautiful bride, if you could put that quick picture up here, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 17. I think there's a photo. Uh, we are now up to 11 grandchildren. Uh, they're overtaking our lives. They're like rabbits. They're coming from every angle, every corridor of our life, the children are coming. Uh, but I will tell you that these four little women right here, Lydia, Tessa, Gemma, and Olivia, those four women right there, they could already make a movie about them. Um, they are like a gang. They dominate these sad little boys over here. They're just very downcast because these four women are dominating the world. Um, but we're so grateful to God. My beautiful bride, Karen, there. We're hitting 41 years of, uh, of marriage this coming August in about a week or so. And uh, we both have hit 60 years of age. She's actually 61, but I won't say that publicly. Uh, in her presence. No, I'm kidding. She's very proud of God's faithfulness in her life. So the Lord has been very, very good. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, this particular passage of scripture is preparing Israel for something that will happen 400 years down the road. They're preparing for a king and Moses is giving the instructions for a king. And he's explaining what a king must do on his first day on the job. Now, it's not a stretch to say that it applies not to, just to those who sit in prominent executive leadership roles, but to us as believers, as priests and kings. And I want to show you what the scripture required of somebody that walks in kingship or kingdom authority. And this applies to every single person in this room. It's fascinating. It's often overlooked, but I think it's one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Verse 14, <coughs> it says, when you enter the land, oh, can I get a little light up here? Oh, they're resetting. We're resetting. When you enter the land and there is darkness over the land. <laughs> when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God has chosen. So we're always in the selection process trying to discover the one the Lord has chosen. We're not choosing. We are identifying the person that God has chosen. So the Bible says, you select the one that I've chosen. And it says here to be uh, the king whom the Lord chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner. Now don't think of that in an ethnic context. The idea here is select someone who knows me, who knows the Lord. Don't select someone who serves a foreign God. So select someone from those who are believers and followers of Jehovah God. Um, then it says, moreover, verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. This job is not about acquisition, personal acquisition. That's why it's always stunning when you hear that a politician, when they became a politician, was worth 
$200,000 and 10 years later they're worth 20 million having been a politician. Somehow they have leveraged that executive platform to acquire horses for themselves. And it says, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return the way. There has to be something about how we do life as Christians that distinguishes us from how the world does life, though we're doing the same thing. We both might be a politician. We both might be a football coach. We both might be an owner of a company. But when somebody gets into the observation, the examination of your life in your household, in your business, there has to be something that is different about you than the way they do it in Egypt. What distinguishes you in your company, your family, your brand? And in this case, don't go back and, and make an alliance with Egypt. We've already said we trust something outside of Egyptian, the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian materialism. So please, please, please don't return to Egypt and behave the same way. It goes, he shall not multiply wives for himself. And in many cases in the Old Testament, they took a wife as a sign of a treaty. But they also took wives in this polygamous sense outside of God's plan for marriage of one man, one wife that was established in the Garden of Eden that Moses established, reestablished in the law that Jesus taught the same truth and Paul reaffirmed in every phase of scripture. The definition of marriage has never changed. He said, don't pick a king who is following the customs of this world because his heart, it said, it will turn away his heart. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So the purpose of leadership, the purpose of influence is not acquisition. If the Lord blesses you through the natural means of wealth building and wisdom, that's clear to man that you're not borrowing the world's ways, then live a generous life and be a blessing to this world. But the purpose of success and influence is not stockpiling this great life for yourself alone. They're saying, if you're going to have a leader, look at these characteristics, look at these motivations. But now it says, here's what the king must do. It says here, verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So the king, his first day on the job is not to decorate, it's not to do a roll call of his military. The first day on the job of a king in the presence of the priests who will hold him accountable, he is to copy for himself the book of the law. Every scholar agrees it would be the first five books of the Pentateuch or the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that we hold in our English version of this scripture, that he is to write it out by hand himself. He didn't, can't delegate it to a priest. The king has to go through himself. This slow, tedious, rigorous transmission 
of the word of God into his life by hand writing out the scripture? Then it says, after he has done this in the presence of the priests, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Not only are you to write this out, but you're to take it with you. This scroll is to be with you. And you are to read it out loud every day. This word for read is a Hebrew word for to read it publicly or to be known as a reader of the scroll. So the king has to become <coughs> consumed <coughs> with truth. He has to become consumed with scripture. He has to go through the personal process, not the delegated process. The personal process of writing out the scripture. Now, I want to flip your idea of a devotional life on its head today. I know this is the early service. A lot of seasoned believers come here. People my age and up been following the Lord. Man, we come from the 1900s. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I was telling them today. When I got married at age 19, my life changed that day because I left my wedding with a set of new towels and some new Tupperware because I grew up my whole life. We never had one thing new. Did you have anything new? I don't even remember a friend getting a new piece of furniture my whole life. We sat on the same furniture our whole life, had the same plates. Tupperware was big. We had a big green Tupperware bowl. Did anybody have that Tupperware bowl? That's the bowl we used growing up every year like clockwork. I would get the stomach flu just like you as a kid. Did anybody get the stomach flu? And it lay on the couch and groan for three days. And I would puke into that Tupperware bowl. Two nights later, the whole family's eating popcorn out of the same bowl. How many know what I'm talking about? You didn't have a puke bowl and a popcorn bowl. You had one bowl. Materialism, acquisition was not part of our existence. But then you become successful. And you begin to have these distorted concepts of what success is. And it's very easy to lose generosity and to focus on acquisition and to start stockpiling your horses and stockpiling your pleasures. And your heart isn't what it once was. Your time isn't what it once was. And so Moses is telling them, if you get a king, that king must establish a radical relationship with the word. I want them to hand write it out. And I want them to carry it with them. I want them to read it in a way not to be a Pharisee. The Pharisees took all of this to the highest religious levels. They ultimately took the idea by the time Jesus was here, the religious, the Jewish and the Pharisees were much later than this. But by the time Jesus was here Phariseeism 
which probably started as a sincere longing for the word, had turned into just unadulterated uh, or, or adulterated religion. And they would take these phylacteries, which the priests in the Old Testament, a phylactery was this long leather strap, like a shoestring, and at the end was a pouch. And they, would, they were to put scriptures in the pouch and hang them from their head so that the pouch dangled around their head. And almost like a Rastafarian or somebody with dreads, these phylacteries would hang. And it signified the word of God was always near their mind. It would kind of bounce off their head, swing around, to remind them to keep the word in their mind. They had other phylacteries that hung further down and bounced against their chest, these little pouches, to signify that the word was near their heart. Now, by the time Jesus came, they had turned that in and of itself into religion, into righteousness, and they would lengthen their phylacteries so that they would have this showy, swingy idea that the word of God, they were just living in it, but it was all a show like the playing of a trumpet when they would pray or fast. But the idea being presented here is that the word of God must consume us and take priority in our life. It cannot be a little fortune cookie, little pithy slogan that kind of is near us or somewhere around us. But they went through the tedious transmission of the word. Now, why were they called to do this? For the same reason we are called to do that today. It's all about the outcome. What's the outcome in all of this? Why are you carrying it around? Why are you reading it daily? It says here, it shall be with him, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 17. He shall read it all the days of his life and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. We understand that, but what does that really mean? Here's what it means. To fear the Lord by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes so that his heart may not be lifted up above his fellow countrymen or his fellow citizens and that he may not turn aside from these commandments in the smallest way, it says, so that his sons may continue long in his kingdom and in the midst of Israel. So here's the compelling call. Why are you going through all this as a king? Because the natural tendency will be acquisition. The natural tendency is horses and pleasure. The natural tendency is to think you're better than the people you serve. The natural tendency is to get neglectful and arrogant and not pay attention to the right or to the left. That things that are small no longer matter. I want you to so embed the word of God in your life so that it will keep you humble and arrogance will be defeated in all of us. And secondly, that you will not defy the glory of God by doing something small and trivial that you don't think matters, that you not violate his word in the smallest way. The only way the word of God can become that dominant is that we go through a process in our life that is very personal, one that's not delegated. You can't say, well, pastor, I need you to know the word and then you teach us the Bible. I'm going to live off those words. 
I don't know if I gave you this illustration last time I was here, but fascinating study in Australia. And I wish Pastor Jesse was here. He would appreciate this. They noticed that a mother's breast milk changed its composite when a baby was an infant was sick. How in the world would a mother's body know that a baby was sick? So they did a test and they pumped breast milk from a healthy mother and they gave that milk to a sick infant that had a little virus. During that process, over time, the milk brought healing to the baby, but it took time. But the mother's milk never changed its composite, the milk that was pumped from the breast. The baby that was nursing in that intimate connection with its mother, somehow that baby with the same virus alerted the mother's body and the mother's body suddenly began to develop millions of new leukocyte cells, put it into the milk, and then deliver the milk to the baby. How in the world is that possible? So they discovered that the nursing baby, when it would nurse, that some of the saliva out of the intimate connection entered the mother's body through the breast. The baby's saliva went into the mama. It alerted and signaled sickness. The mother's body then is designed by Almighty God to engineer the necessary combatant. The leukocyte cells are increased and then re-delivered to the sick baby and that baby recovered quickly. So they said, there's something here we need to notice. The baby that was receiving good milk, but it was pumped and then delivered. As opposed to the baby that was nursing, that had an intimate connection to the mother. And that is really how we can look at our relationship to the Lord. You could come to Eternity Church and Pastor Jesse can deliver some wonderful milk and meat of the word, but milk that's been pumped, delivered in a bottle, and it's good. But for those in this room that have an intimate, personal relationship with the Lord, there's something about that intimacy with God when you pray and when you read your word that is personal apart from Pastor Jesse that the Lord can taste your tears. He can discern quickly somehow the lies of the enemy in your mind and your heart. There's a bacteria in there. There's a lie that's working in your life about your upbringing, your childhood, in which you think your entire life is being controlled by history. Our society is plagued with this. Your life is not controlled by history. Your life is dictated by promises, friends, not history. And the devil wants you to think that history is running your life. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie that's in a direct conflict with the promises of the word of God. 
But when you're intimate with the Lord in a nursing way with him, he can taste your tears. He can discern the lies of the enemy and quickly engineer the word of God back to you through the Holy Spirit that destroys that lie much faster than simply hearing good teaching. I no longer say, Lord, I want to be more committed. I say, Lord, I, I want to be more intimate with you, Lord, not more committed to you, Lord. If quoting scripture worked for Jesus, he quoted the Bible to the devil. It can certainly work for you and me. When I was in second grade, I memorized my first scripture. My dad said, I want you to memorize Matthew 6, 33, and I'll give you a dollar. And I was so excited. In second grade, Issaquah Elementary School, I was living, we were living in the Wild Ridge Apartments in Issaquah, Washington. I remember it like it was yesterday. But my dad was kind of lived a messed up life. His Christianity was in tiny little spurts. His Christianity, was, his Christianity was always the exception, not the norm. Unbelief, anger, rage, violence was the norm. And then you'd have these little blips of Christian behavior. It's confusing. So I memorized that scripture, but my dad never ever came back and asked me to say it. He forgot about it. But I'll never forget it. Seek first the kingdom of God. I learned all of that when I was a little fella, what the kingdom was, his righteousness. I learned that as a little second grader, um, that all these things would be added unto me I remember that in second grade, but I was never asked. He didn't follow through with that. It wasn't until I was in eighth grade and I was playing on a basketball team, me and this other assembly God kid in Redding, California, went and played for the Baptist church. We became Baptist for two weeks because <laughs> we could hoop. And our team was so good, we made it to the national finals in Scroon Lake, New York, upstate New York. We flew from Redding, California, a little group of junior hires. And there was a youth pastor named Craig Scott, two first names, but Craig Scott, he was a Marine. Perfect Marine haircut, yoked, wore white t-shirts, looked like the classic G.I. Joe guy. But he loved the Lord. He was hard on us. We ended up third in the whole country out of 2,000 teams. But it was a Christian event, and I'll never forget it because that's where I went to the altar the first time in my life. A guy named Pat Williams from the Philadelphia 76ers was there and gave his testimony in front of about 800 junior high boys from all over the United States for this big tournament. And I remember walking down that little grass amphitheater to this little fire pit and praying the sinner's prayer. And I really do look at that moment as the moment Jesus became legitimized in my life, forgave my sins. My name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life in that moment. Last summer, I was actually preaching in Albany, New York and found out Scroon Lake and Lake Placid was right near there. So I took my wife, we got in a car and drove and I found the Word of Life Bible Camp in Scroon Lake, New York last summer. I wish I would have brought a picture.
I found the basketball courts in the cabin that we were in, and I was just in this bizarre time travel. It's 1976 all of a sudden. And I said, sweetheart, there's a place around here near this lake. And I found the grassy slope that was all covered in weeds and the, all the benches were kind of broken. I said, it was here, sweetheart. And I walked down to the very front and there was like this old Testament altar that was all broken. It was this brick little fire pit. I said, sweetheart, here's where I stood. When I asked Jesus into my life, I was standing right here when I was 14. And I actually took a little brick, didn't steal it, just borrowed it. Uh, uh, um, it's on my shelf in my office. But what was memorable was that Craig Scott, the youth pastor, challenged us to memorize Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water, whose leaf does not fail in his season. I still remember it. Because we memorize it, and he asked us two days later to say it, and he was a good discipler who circled back and followed up. When I became a youth pastor when I was 20 years old, and our musicians can come now, I remember just being committed to, not because of this passage, matter of fact, I don't think I'd ever even read this by that stage in my life. But I began to memorize the Bible. How did I do it? I took a little three by five white card and I would write the verse on one side and then the location of that verse on the other side. And I started to build that stack and I put a rubber band around it when I got to 100 and then another. And I had a little over 1,000 verses that I had memorized in my early 20s. From these little cards, if you were to go to my house, today in my desk. I have a PhD from Gonzaga. I've been a university president. I have a phenomenal library, both digital and in hard copy. But what has driven my life is what's in the top right-hand drawer. <coughs> These little childlike second and third grade flashcards that have kept the Bible alive in my heart and in my mind and never graduating out from under the hope of keeping the Word of God so dominant in my life, not in a religious way, but in a way that I have a reputation from my children that dad and grandpa knows the Bible, cares about Scripture. And grandpa, what are these little cards? They look like things that we write out. I said, well, grandpa still writes these out and uses these cards to be able to embed and treasure the word. About a year and a half ago, I was, I was familiar with this, but I really, the passage just went, wow. And I want to be careful because I certainly have not achieved this. But I have started a project in my life just to see if it's possible in a lifetime. And I went down to Barnes and Noble and got a journal, big thick one, hardback with 500 or 400 pages of 
lined paper. And I said, I wonder if this is possible. And if started, here we go, in the beginning was God. And I want to see if I can get to the very last line in the Bible in my lifetime. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Almost through Genesis, just handwriting the Bible. I'm not the first to do this. I've been discovering other prominent leaders and scholars and people that have loved the Lord and had a very intimate relationship with God and wanting to make certain that arrogance and horses and pleasure and left and right does not distract or pull me away from my intimate walk with God. Now, I don't know what this means for you in the Bible, but when I was in second grade, I started memorizing scripture. It accelerated through my teenage years and in my early 20s. There's been seasons where I have not been attentive to it, just kind of living off what I know a little bit. And then I'll feel convicted Say, I used to know that verse. I used to know where that was. I don't know what it means, but if we're going to stand in this day and age against this last day's end times assault against truth, two trees were placed in the garden, friends. I wish one was orange and one was purple. I wish one of the trees was put in the garden and the other tree was put on planet Pluto. But the Lord put two trees in the middle of the garden side by side, a shadow and a substance. One tree's fruit, you die. The other tree's fruit, you perpetuate the eternity of Eden and you would never die. Put them side by side. The devil came to Eve and said, you know, did God really say don't eat from that tree? Kind of posed a question posed a question and Eve quotes scripture she quotes what the Lord said she nailed it a plus Eve got it right and once the devil realized that he couldn't take down Eve with a question he says God did not say he tries to take her down with a lie and the devil will try to get you to question things but if you stand firm he's gonna come at you with a lie and when he came at Eve with a lie, he said, you will not die. You'll be like God. <clears throat> and it got Eve to take another look. And that's what the devil wants, is for you and I to take another look at that other tree. And she glanced at it and said, you know, this fruit is pleasing to the eye, just like this fruit is pleasing to the eye. You know, it's good for food. It tastes good. This and this, they both taste the same. And you know what? That tree also makes one wise or enlightened. Oh, I feel fully educated and enlightened and progressive in my worldview that what I know now is far more than what these Neanderthals knew when they wrote the Bible. I'm enlightened. 
Well, who can say no to that? God, why did you put the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the death tree? Why'd you put them side by side? And why do they look the same, taste the same, and seemingly produce the same thing, wisdom and enlightenment? Because friends, every one of us in this room, the older we get, we're all growing wise. Everybody grows wise. We either grow wise in the Lord or wise in our own eyes but everybody's growing wise, confident, intellectually confident. How in the world can we tell the difference between the two trees, church? Certainly not with any human faculty. I can't tell the difference. Love is love. Love is love, right? I can't tell the difference. <clears throat> People are happy. They're together. They're doing life. Love is love, right? Fruit is fruit, right? The only way you can tell the difference between the fruit, friends, of those trees is only one way. It's what God said about the trees. The only way you tell the difference is what God said about the trees. So if the word of God is lost, I love it when the apostle Paul got slapped in the face in the book of Acts. And he said, you whitewashed sepulcher. He called them a whitewashed. <coughs> Boom. And then he said, hey, you know he's the high priest. And Paul quickly arrested himself and says, basically, forgive me. For the word says, you are not to touch the Lord's anointed. The word of God, a memory verse, quickly brought him back into sensibility. But if you don't have the word of God inside of you, you cannot find bearings. You're getting slapped around. You're eating from the wrong tree and we don't even know it because we don't know what God has said about that. So today on Sunday morning, we're talking about our Bible life, our devotional life. And I want to pray for you. Let's all stand across this room if we can. I want you to, King, your first day in the presence of the priests. That's why by me telling you, it helps me stay accountable. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write it out because that slow, rigorous, the pace of writing is transferring it into my psyche and my soul in a way that little ceremonies and celebrations and festivals, little reminders cannot. And then I'm going to keep it with me. And I'm going to read from it every day so that I can walk in the fear of the Lord, which means not become arrogant and think I'm better than you that I'm not better than the people I serve. And that, Lord, I will not in the smallest way go right or left. That's what the fear of the Lord is all about. I don't know what the condition of your devotional life is, but I pray today there would be a jump start, a supercharge. There would be something upon children, upon men in this room, high executives and people that are well have achieved well in this life, men and women, but especially you men, 
us being known for the fact that the Word of God is prominent. What are these flashcards? You're the president of a company. What are these little cards? Well, I, I memorize scripture. And treat it like your stock portfolio. Try to get 50 of them and then grow it to 100 verses. Maybe God will challenge you to pick a book and say, I'm going to take this journal and I'm going to write out the book of Romans by hand and see what I learn by writing it out. Because I want to always serve the people and not think I'm above them. And I don't want to compromise in the smallest way. In this last days, friends, where America continues to eat from the wrong tree, what's going to keep you and I knowing which tree is life? It's knowing what God said about life and what God said about the trees. Can we lift our hands in this room, across this room, and Lord God, I know this is a totally different kind of Sunday morning message, Lord. Father, I pray that, Lord, the preacher would be forgotten, Lord, but the call to being a powerful, humble king in your kingdom, God. Lord, that our love for the word, you would supercharge us, rip us open, put something new inside me, Lord. I am yours today, Jesus. Lord, I pray my devotional life would become radical. My devotional life, God, would become dominant in my life. Lord, that the word would richly dwell in me today, Lord. Lord, help the second graders start memorizing the Bible. Lord, let the 20-somethings memorize Scripture, Lord. Lord, let all of us, my agent up, God, re-engage with the Word of God. Speak to us in a new and creative way, God. Help us to get a journal. Help us to start writing the Scriptures, thinking about the Bible, Lord. Father, we want to eat from the tree of life, God. Lord, we want to be able to preach life and give life in these days, Lord, instead of perpetuating death in the name of life. Help us, Jesus. In your mighty name, we pray. Hallelujah. How many are glad you came to the house of the Lord today? is on fire. This is great. They said, well, this is the smallest crowd, and sometimes they're tired. What? My goodness. You guys have been wonderful. Keep supporting Pastor Jesse. The team, get behind it all. The devil did not take out this church in the pandemic. Nobody's dead in the stairwell, friends. Nobody's dropped dead of fear around here. Church is living breathing, powerful and mighty. Your, one of your pastors is coming, Laura, uh, to come and give us direction here in the last few moments. Um, I'll be out there in the lobby. Uh, come by. I know so many of you. Good to see you again. Uh, these resources are there, especially those dominion cards. If you're discipling, just put them in your Bible. It'll help get the word of God. There's a small cost for them to cover the cost of the production of them. 
Uh, but these resources are out there for you today. God is good. We love you, Eternity Church. Can't wait to come back again. God bless. God bless. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please check out our other episodes. If you would like to connect with Eternity Church, be sure to go to myeternity.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at My Eternity Church. We'll see you next week. Love you heaps.